Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Let us pray. Our fairest Savior, our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love, for your word to us. We pray now that as we reflect on this word that you would move into our hearts and our minds to draw us closer into relationship with you, to strengthen us in our faith, and to give us guidance in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I used to live in the west end of Toronto, and when I lived out there, I, I loved running in High Park. You all know that I'm, I'm a runner already, but I used to love running in High Park. It's such a, a beautiful park with lots of woodland and water and, and uh, lots of space. And one of my favorite times to run there was the month of June. And, and on one hand, it, it was crazy time to run in High Park because it was starting to get busy that time of the year as the, the warm weather of late spring uh, was bringing all the winter-weary city dwellers out of their homes in large numbers to gather in the park. So between the, the walkers absent-mindedly strolling down the wrong side of the path and the speeding cyclists zipping past and the exuberant children just oblivious to the whole world around them and the often poorly controlled dogs, <laughs> between all of that, high parks, roads, and pathways require a runner's full attention all the time. You always have to be aware of what's going on so you don't run into something. But there was one thing that would always make me stop, always would cause me to break my stride at, in June, and that was the sight of all of the freshly hatched ducklings that were scattered around the shores of Grenadier Pond. There they'd be, hundreds of these little ducklings uh, swimming, paddling around together on the edge of the water, never venturing too far from the rest of the family, or some of them would be up on the banks nibbling at the grass. And there was always a mother duck right there too, and often a father as well, but always the mother was right there. And sometimes the, the duck families would venture away from the pond and go on a little excursion together, uh, and they would uh, explore the grass on the other side of the path, a whole new world on the other side of the path. And, and as they would cross the path, the walkers, the runners, the cyclists, the children, the dogs be damned, everything came to a stop when that little duck family was crossing the road. I was always so impressed by the sheer confidence of the mother duck who just set out across the road, leading her family eyes forward, fully expecting that everything and everyone would come to a standstill uh, and allow her babies their way, to make their way across. And her confidence was not in vain. As long as the ducklings followed her closely and didn't stray off in their own way, they always made it across safely. 
Now, I can imagine that the Apostle Paul must have felt like a mother duck sometimes, guiding these new, freshly hatched believers through the various dangers and situations that they faced as Christians in the first century. And he did it with confidence, knowing that his charges, in this case a group of, of, of young, new Christians, so to speak, would be surrounded and protected by the Holy Spirit as long as they kept their eyes fixed on Christ. Now Paul is most likely writing this letter to the Colossians from prison in Ephesus. The church in Colossae was a new church at that time, as I said, but the gospel of Jesus Christ had taken root quickly there in that city. And Paul was overjoyed about their energy and their enthusiasm for the gospel. His only wish was that he could be with them there in person to help personally guide them through the dangers of which they were not even cognizant. They were just filled with joy at having discovered the gospel and had no awareness of what might try to lead them astray. Um, but Paul can't be there, and so he writes letters, as he did for many of the other churches, and he encourages them to hold fast to their new faith, to cling to what they have learned, to continue to grow in the ways that they have been taught, and to grow in faith and devotion, and to not stray from that. The main danger to this new church, which hadn't had time to really establish deep roots, the main danger is what Paul is addressing in this morning's reading from chapter 2. Now, most of the first chapter of the book of Colossians focuses on, uh, on who Christ is. It's a reminder of who Christ is. And there's a section that is uh, Paul's words of commendation and encouragement uh, for how the Colossian church has received the gospel and allowed it to flourish amongst them. So he commends them for that and he reminds them of who Christ is in chapter 1. But Paul knows only too well how easy it is when faith is not deeply rooted in the person of Jesus and, a, and an understanding of his life and death and resurrection, how easy it is to be influenced by novel new ideas or, as in this case, by bold and deceptive teachers who would prefer to lead them backwards into the law rather than forwards into freedom in Christ. What we read here in Colossians is Paul's expression of concern to the Colossians that certain misguided zealots, which there were at a time, were coming to these new churches and possibly from nearby Galatia, which was known to be a, a hot spot of false teaching at the time. And he felt that these, uh, these misguided teachers were coming and teaching them that believing in Jesus only got them halfway there, right? And that in order to complete their conversion, they must submit to circumcision, circumcision, which was what marked male Jews as being people of the Abrahamic covenant. And furthermore, these teachers also taught that new Christians 
first must be circumcised, then must follow the Jewish laws of ritual purity. So food laws, bathing laws, all of these things that were part of, of the Jewish laws of purity, these Christians were now being told that this is what they had to do as well. And Paul strongly reminds the Colossians here that they don't need to do that. That Christ has done everything already on their behalf. And there is nothing more that they need to do than to keep doing what they're already doing, which is believing in the gospel of Jesus and devoting their lives to following him. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, he says, continue to walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught. He warns them that circumcision and adherence to the law is not the fulfillment of their conversion, but is actually a step backwards. It's a rejection of what God has done and a reliance on what he calls human tradition. He says, watch out. Watch out that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the world. Now I can certainly appreciate, and, I, and I'm sure all of you can too as well, the, the Colossians' sincere desire to learn and to grow and, and they, they, although they're new believers now, they want to become mature believers. And they have a willingness to learn and to trust the words of people who claim to really know what they're talking about. People who, who seem confident and bold. And so the Colossians have accepted Christ. And they want to please Christ. They want to continue to grow. And they want to live good and faithful lives. And they're, and they're trying to learn how to do that. And, and that's like all of us, right? We all want to live good lives, right? We want to be faithful. We all want to live well and do well. And we want to be good people. And there's no shortage of teachers out there who, who maybe are well-intentioned, but do nothing more, really, than take us captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the world. Rather than centering our hearts and minds on Christ and what he has done for us. I have an acquaintance, um, a friend really, uh, I'll call her Julia, that's not her real name. And, uh, and Julie, you know, she's, she didn't grow up in the church, she doesn't really have an understanding of the Christian faith. And so she's, she's actually, her, her knowledge of the Christian faith is informed by media and pop culture. And so she's, she's very disdainful of Christianity. And she's a lovely person, but um, often when something happens, when there's some kind of scandal or, or something in the news that kind of confirms her opinion of Christianity, she'll, she'll post it on social media and she'll make comments about those Christians as though what that individual did represents all of us, all Christians. 
uh, or, or as though that's the heart of Christianity itself. I find it a little hurtful, to be honest, because she knows me, she knows my husband, um, we're she knows we're Christians. Um, and whenever we get together, we rarely talk about it. We, talk, we don't talk about religion, but, but when, she, when we do, she'll, she'll actually be kind of contemptuous and, and sometimes even mock the things that, that I say, and, and, and that's okay. That's, I know where she's coming from, but it doesn't uh, change what, <laughs> what I believe. The curious thing, though, is that while she mocks and disrespects you know, those she call, considers to be religious nuts, she has become a huge devotee of a British relationship guru who gives all kinds of advice uh, about dating to women. His very slick website promises that if you take his courses, you will understand men. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> you will find lasting love, a little more plausible. And if you follow his program, you will transform your life. Wow, all this for a merely thousands of dollars. Well, Julie has taken these gurus programs. She's traveled to the U.S. She's traveled overseas to attend his conferences and workshops. Yet despite her devotion, despite following his advice for several years, despite her sincerity and her true desire to be better, to live a better life, Julie is still single. When I think about the time and money she has invested in something so fruitless, and when I when I compare it to the, how amazing it has been to have, for me to have Jesus in my life, it makes me feel sorry for her because the implicit conclusion of all of these self-help gurus is that their, their premise is that because their principles really work, and if they don't work for you, you must not be doing it right. They don't work for you you're the one who's deficient. Therefore, of course, you should spend more money and take the next program, and then maybe you'll get it right. There are all kinds of teachings in the world right now that make all kinds of promises to cure all of the ills of your life. The interesting thing, however, is that it seems these great self-help trends and gurus just seem to keep, they come and go, right? They come and go. There's always this new trend, this new wave, this new fad, this new promise. In the 1950s, Norman Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking took the world by storm, promising that success in life comes from believing in yourself. What is success in life? And if you don't achieve that, then it must be because you don't believe in yourself enough. In the 1980s, Anthony Robbins started teaching about how to awaken the giant within and take control of your own destiny until you run into life circumstances that are just outside of your control. 
In the 90s, Don Miguel Ruiz, uh, the four agreements promised a path to personal freedom. I can't even remember what the four agreements were anymore. That's how <laughs> memorable they were. But more recently, a best-selling self-help book was published called The Lost Art of Not Giving a Fill-in-the-Blank. <laughs> this book apparently says that, you know what? Life just won't always be happy. So the best thing that you can do to be fulfilled in life is to just do what you want. Yes, the secret to a happy life is to be completely self-absorbed, <laughs> according to this book. Contrary to all of the studies that have shown that most people live the most meaningful lives when they are focused on serving others. Right? I have to confess, I'll, I'll confess that as, as a woman in my 50s who has just gotten to that point in life where I'm kind of tired of it all anyway, right? I, I, I found that that title really appealed to me. And, <laughs> and I just might go out and buy that book. <laughs> if all these authors are so sure, are so sure that they know the pathway to perfect fulfillment, then why do we need more? and more, and more new books, new teachings, new and more expensive programs to follow. Why? Because they take people captive through philosophy and empty deceit. They make all of these great promises, but the onus is always on you to get it right. You know what book doesn't change? What book has stood the test of time for 2,000 years is this one, is the Bible. And you know why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, doesn't put the onus on you. It doesn't sell an empty promise that you can be perfect. Your life can be perfect if only you follow all of these man-made principles perfectly. Oh, and thank you for handing over your cash and making me rich. And good luck <laughs> following the book. No. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him, who is the head of every ruler and every authority. You have come to fullness in him already. What Paul teaches the Colossians and the important lesson that we have to learn here is that if you've already got Jesus, then there's nothing else you need. He tells them you don't need to be circumcised in the flesh in order to be right with God. Rather, by your faith in, Je in Jesus, your spirit bears the marks of the new covenant in Christ. And by that, all of the laws of purity are already fulfilled. One who has faith in Christ, one who has been made clean by his sacrifice, needs no other purity rituals because he took away all of our impurity. He took it away, and it was buried with him in the tomb, and it was redeemed by the power of the resurrection. And the reason 
Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient is because although Jesus was fully human, he was not only a human being like you and I. He was and is the bodily form of God himself. Jesus was God in all his fullness, and he has done what no human can do, what God alone can do. So in fulfilling the law, he fulfilled it perfectly. And there's nothing we can do that adds to or takes away from that perfection. We need only fix our eyes on him, stay close to him, confidently walk with him. Now there's nothing wrong inherently with studying different authors and, and reading self-help books and trying to find ways to improve yourself. What Paul would say to the Colossians and what I would say to you today is that, that there's a litmus test in all of this. Does this have Jesus as its center and focus? Does this have freedom in Christ as its focus? If not, if not, if it's putting all the onus on you, then be very cautious. Be attentive to those things that sound vaguely nice and something that's nice to hear, nice, uh, you know, platitudes, but that actually contradict the freedom of the gospel. Like anything that says you just need to tap into the perfection that's already inside of you, or that you have all the power to make happen whatever you want in your life. No, when I read stuff like that, I'm not fooling myself. I know I don't have perfection inside of me, which is why I'm so grateful that God loves me anyway. And as for, as for having power to change my own life, I know that as soon as I become hangry, or as soon as I get behind the wheel of a car, any power that I might have had to live my best life goes straight out the window. What the gospel tells us is that Jesus is perfect. Jesus has all the power. And when we come to the end of our own resources, which we always will, we need only to lean into him. Keep our eyes on him for his yoke is easy and his burden is light the gospel brings no other requirements other than that we fix our eyes on christ and the life and the freedom that he has purchased for us by his own sacrifice on the cross author peter kreeft tells the story of a poor European family who saved all of their money for years to buy tickets to sail to America. Once at sea, the family carefully rationed all of the cheese and bread that they had brought to sustain them on the journey. After three days of eating cheese and bread, the youngest boy complained to his father, I hate cheese sandwiches. If I don't eat something else, 
before we get to America, I'm going to die. <laughs> the father gave the boy his last nickel and told him to go to the ship's galley and buy himself an ice cream cone. The boy returned a long time later with a wide smile on his face. And his worried dad asked, where were you? In the galley, the boy said, I ate three ice cream cones and a whole steak dinner. <laughs> All that for a nickel, the father said. Oh no, oh no, the boy said. The food is free. It comes with the ticket. There are many false teachers in the world offering us bread and cheese instead of the full steak dinner that is available. We who have trusted in Christ for salvation have been assured not only of safe passage to eternal life, we are also provided with everything we need to live full, Christ-centered lives here and now. Christ is all we need. Thanks be to God. Amen.